As we begin, I was uh, thinking about the passage today and uh, what I would I'd speak about in First Kings and also in, in the Gospel, and I was brought back to a, a really gripping nonfiction story uh, by a man named George Jonas. He wrote a book called Vengeance. And George Jonas has now passed away, but he was a journalist, a Jewish journalist, who wrote about the Munich Massacre. What that was is the 1972, during the Olympics, some of you will remember that several Israeli athletes were murdered by a terrorist organization. And it shocked the world, A, because of the murder, but B, because it happened on German soil, still under the shadow of the Holocaust. And it caused not only an international incident, uh, it was something that shocked the consciences of many people throughout the world. But what that story was really about, and you may have got from that title, was it looked at the Mossad and what they did as a way of retaliating against it. And they put together a special force of Israeli agents that slowly, one by one, picked off all of the people who were responsible for it, tracked them down, and killed them. But one of the things that was gripping about that book was not just looking at that. It had a great spy adventure quality, but also about the murky waters that it led people into and the ways that it caused many of the people who were trying to pursue justice ended up, in fact, doing really terrible things in the midst of it. Steven Spielberg made a movie called Munich that sort of roughly followed that, uh, that uh, nonfiction novel of vengeance. But it tells us a little bit about that desire for vengeance, but also about how it goes so very wrong. I remembered that and I thought about that because today I think our gospel lesson really points out that desire for vengeance and how it is that Christ rejects it. I want to speak to you today about why Jesus responds in the way that he does when his disciples call for vengeance on the Samaritans and what that means for us today uh, when we find ourselves attacked and we find ourselves hurt. One of the most important things to understand here as we're looking at the gospel lesson, and as you may have heard, is that Jesus is now, we're told, entering a new phase of his ministry. In Luke's gospel up until this point, Jesus has been doing many miraculous things. He's been saying many wonderful things. He's been gathering a crowd around him, and he's been making hints about what's about to come. But now in this point, as Jesus uh, begins to realize now God is calling him to go to Jerusalem, Luke makes it clear and says Jesus now sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And we as Christians know what's coming. That's why there's a cross hanging on the wall of every church in this nation, because we know that Jesus is setting his face to Jerusalem, ultimately to face his own uh, torture and death. Jesus, as he moves from Galilee in the northern part of Israel, is now making his way to the south part of Israel, where Jerusalem is located. But in order to do that, to go from Galilee to Jerusalem, he has to pass through a middle territory known as Samaria. Samaria is, surprise, surprise, populated by Samaritans, but... The most important thing to know about that is that Samaritans and Jews did not get along at all. There's a long history behind it, but all you really need to know is, is that the Samaritan people so often disliked the Jews that when Jews tried to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem and to the temple, they caused them a lot of difficulty. Here we find Jesus and his disciples are rejected. We won't even feed you or allow you to stay in our village, but we know from contemporary sources that in fact things could get even worse. There have been many incidents we hear from contemporary sources about Jewish people being threatened with violence, people being beaten up, and also even massacres occurring as Jewish pilgrims tried to reach Jerusalem on their way to honor their vows to God. Jesus, in sending out messengers saying, go and prepare a place, we find, first of all, that Jesus is rejected there, and the disciples have a very reasonable fear that these Samaritans might actually want to kill them. 
Jesus is going about to the mission God has given him, and yet he finds that these people, out of racial animosity, prevent him from doing it. As you look at the story, it should really make us think about incidents in the Old South, for example, where a, a black person may be starving but could not eat at a lunch counter because white people would not allow them even to eat with them. And that seems to be what the situation is going on here. And so, understandably, the disciples are pretty miffed. But here's one thing that's really important for you to understand. Do you notice that theme of fire going on through this? Listen to what the disciples say when they're rejected by the people who are there in uh, Samaria. The disciples say, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, that seems like a pretty dramatic thing for them to say. You might think the disciples would say, can we go around maybe? Or they might say, hey, do you want us to go and rough up those Samaritans a little bit and teach them a lesson? Instead, they go literally Old Testament and say, call down fire. But you know what's really interesting? And did you notice that our first reading had a very interesting and important person in it? His name was Elijah. In order to understand this passage properly, we have to go all the way back to the life of Elijah and hear this interesting little story that happens just before what we read in the Old Testament. The king sent to him, sent to Elijah, a captain of 50 and his 50 men. And he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Another captain gets sent and says, come down. And Elijah does the same thing, and they all get burnt up. But then the, uh, the third captain kind of realizes something's going on here. And so instead of saying, oh, man of God, come down, instead he says this, oh, man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Look, fire came down from heaven, consumed the two former captains of 50 men in their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him and do not be afraid of him. And so he sat out and went down with him to the king. The king wants to kill Elijah, or at best, rough him up. And Elijah knows very what's about to happen. He is a man of God who is called to complete a mission and be called up into heaven, and Elijah calls down fire to prevent these people from stopping his mission. Then he finally goes to the king because he knows God is protecting him after these people come to beg him and to ask for his forgiveness. Look at the disciples here and put yourself in their situation. John the Baptist came saying, someone will come after me who will cleanse this earth with spirit and with fire. Behold, the, the winnowing fork is in his hand. He wants to separate the, the wheat from the chaff, and the chaff he will burn in everlasting fire. Then the disciples see Jesus doing great things, and he sees the Samaritans blocking him from doing his mission. And what do they think? They think, aha, this is what happened to Elijah. Let's do the very same thing, send down fire to consume these people who are doing something wicked and stopping us from doing our mission. And Jesus says, no. More than Jesus saying no, instead of doing the thing that seems obvious, this is an injustice, they're standing in my way, Jesus not only says no and rebukes his disciples, you know what happens right after this? Jesus does a couple of important things and then the very next opportunity to sit down and to teach his disciples, do you know which parable he tells? He tells the parable of the good Samaritan. 
Jesus talks about a, a situation where a man is beaten, lying, dying on the ground, and a priest, an upstanding individual in Israel, passes him by. A Levite, a person who stands in the temple and worships God, passes him by. And you know who stops and helps the man? It is one of the same kind of people who just through racial animus prevented us from even eating in the village where we're about to do God's mission. Jesus says, don't forget that this is a person made in God's image and capable of doing godly and loving things. You know, what's even more amazing is if you go through Luke's gospel, after Luke's gospel comes to an end, Luke writes a sequel to that gospel called the book of Acts. You know what Jesus does in his last words before he leaves and is called up into heaven? Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Then we find in Acts chapter 8, just a few verses later, exactly what has happened. Philip the deacon goes to Samaria, Peter and John. John, one of the people who had asked to call down fire on Samaria, goes to Samaria not to bring fire to them, but instead to call them to follow Jesus Christ. Here's what's really interesting about this passage. You look at Elijah calling down fire, you look at John the Baptist calling down fire, and everybody expects Jesus will call down fire to consume his enemies. But we find instead on the day of Pentecost that Jesus calls down fire to, to, not to consume his enemies, but to transform them. The fire doesn't come to destroy, instead the fire comes to purge people of those things that bind them and lead them into sin and to free them to do what is right and what is good. And this is so powerful a story for us because I believe that when we look at this and we look at the very reasonable reasons why Israelis, why Jewish people would hate the Samaritan people as a result of what they have done, instead of Jesus saying, I want to crush them, instead he says, I want to change their hearts because I love them and I want them to live in the freedom and the knowledge of God. Frankly, this is not the first instinct that most of us, I think, have when we are hated and despised. You know, one of the things that I've been talking about an awful lot in past years is that uptick in violence against Christian people throughout the world. When Pakistan, we find a church bombing a few years ago. In Egypt, where Christians are harassed. When we look at parts of, of Syria in which entire villages are wiped out and in which human enslavement occurs because of a great violence and hatred against Christian people, frankly, there's something inside of me that says God consume and destroy them because of what they're doing. And yet we look at these passages and Jesus asks, is it really their destruction that we should be wanting? Or is it instead the change of their hearts so that they begin to see how evil their actions are and come to the Lord that they might be changed? You know, sadly, so often our first desire is for vengeance. But as I mentioned in that book, and as we see through human history, that desire for vengeance doesn't bring about change. Instead, what it brings about is an endless cycle of violence. Think about the French Revolution and about how it is that the poor people were generally and truly oppressed by upper classes. They violently revolt, and what do they usher in? The great terror in which the guillotine swung down again and again and again in a bloodbath that left many generations destroyed. Look at the Russian Revolution in which the, the rich opposed the poor, and then what did we find? An oppressive, re oppressive regime in the Soviet Union. And yet, when Jesus tells us to forgive and Jesus tells us to long for the transformation of others, he's not saying let just injustice simply stand, but instead is asking, do we want injustice to end by the destruction of our foes or do we want injustice to end by our foes coming to realize the truth and repenting? 
few months ago, I sent out on Facebook, and if you're on Facebook, you may have seen it, but through our church, a really interesting article published in the New Atlantis. And it was called, I can't remember the, the title of it, but it was about uh, confronting trolls on the internet. And trolls, for those of you who don't know what they are, trolls are the kind of people where you put something up on Facebook about your family and they, some random person says, oh, they're all ugly. Or uh, whenever a politician puts something up, they get uh, 50 comments about how stupid they are and how they're Nazis or whatever it is that it's going to be. But what was so interesting about this story, when it wasn't a, a neat little story about two Christians, I don't know about their, their religious background. A woman named Lindy West is a, is a, is a columnist. And she often writes about, uh, about, uh, you know, things that are often controversial. And so she says, you know, she gets 30 death threats before breakfast. Sadly, that's the reality of how things are for people in the public sphere. But here's what was really arresting about this story. She said that one morning she got an email from somebody who had read some of her columns and got angry about it for some reason. And then they went, in fact, to look a little bit about her history and found out that her father had recently died. And so this person, this internet troll, wrote an email, a nasty email, saying to her how much her father must be embarrassed and ashamed of her because she's such a terrible person. What was really interesting was is that she said, although she's used to getting death threats and you know you never feed the trolls and you just let it slide off your back, somehow this connected because the grief she was feeling was so raw. And she wrote a column about it a few weeks later. Here's what's happened and here's where it got really interesting. This man who wrote this email to her that was so nasty wrote her another one and said, you know, I just read this column. It was the first time it really struck home to me that what I was doing was attacking a real human being with real feelings. And I want to say I'm sorry. So he made a donation to the hospital where her father died. And what it got even more interesting is is that a few years later, on NPR, which is an American American radio station, she was interviewed about uh, trolling and about the ways that people have attacked her, and she invited this man to be part of that interview. And he talked about how, in the past few years, as a result of what had happened, he began to realize how often he had a deep-seated anger towards women, how often it is that he worked out his violence and uh, aggression against other people instead of looking at his own life. Here was a man who could easily have been crushed. She easily could have said, fire this guy, get rid of him. But instead, this man was transformed as a force for good. That's what we're called to do as Christians, to realize that what our calling is, is to do what is right and good, not to to be silent in the face of injustice, but instead to desire that those who do evil be saved. Because at the heart of our faith, of course, is what? It's Jesus coming to a world, not a world that deserved Jesus' love, not a world that was weighed in the balance and decided on balance of things it was great, but instead to a world that frankly had turned away from God, in fact, so much so that they in fact killed his own son, But he nevertheless came because he wanted not the world's destruction, but instead that the world be saved. Jesus came to bring life and to bring it abundantly, even for people who are trolls and even for people who hurt us. It's a challenge for us to ask, when we are hurt, what do we want? Do we really want people destroyed? Then ask yourself whether that's what Christ is leading us to. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. Not because it's not important, but instead because you will have the opportunity to bring them a salvation and freedom from the sin that strangles them and causes them to hate. But I'll say in the second part of this, and I'll say it briefly, Jesus not only says to do this, uh, he rebukes those who send down fire from heaven, he wants the transformation of Samaritans, prays for those who are persecuting him, and wants their hearts to change. Jesus also says some really harsh things about what it means to follow him. 
If you would listen to the gospel reading, you probably would have been not so shocked by the fire from heaven. What you would have been shocked by is how Jesus, Jesus continues in this uh, section. When Jesus tells would-be followers what they're supposed to expect. Jesus, uh, a man comes to him and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Oh, that's great. I'd love that you follow. Thankfully, I've got another follower. Nope. He says, foxes have hold, birds of the airs have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And we should put that in our welcome brochure when people come in, right? <laughs> to another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said, Dan, let the dead bury their own dead. That's pretty harsh. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Ouch. There's a high cost of discipleship, Jesus says. Why is he saying what he's doing? I think Jesus wants his disciples or his would-be disciples to realize that there is always a cost of following Jesus. And the route that he is asking people to take is not an easy route, even if it's the right one. We look at that situation Jesus is in, and he's so strong in his words, I think, because he realizes that he is literally going towards a cross that will literally kill him. Jesus will be executed, the shepherd will be struck, and the sheep will be scattered. I think Jesus is really looking at people to that, his day and saying, do you realize that what's going to happen to me is my death? That your lives will be threatened? You need to be really serious about this faith thing, because if you do not really believe that my way is the way of righteousness, if my way is the way that truly brings you life, then you might as well not bother now because it's going to cause you a lot of pain and you're going to regret it. Now, of course, that situation I mentioned about Christians in other countries, they actually have to think about this. When they walk to church and they bring their children to church, they may actually be risking their lives. And Jesus is asking them, do you love me more than this? Do you love me more than your own life and your security? Thankfully, we are very unlikely to be called to give up our lives for Jesus in a literal, physical way. But I also think that there's a cost to doing what Jesus says about forgiving those who hurt us. And one of the most inspiring figures in American history, of course, is Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King, we revere and we say how wonderful he is. And, and of course, in the United States, they have a holiday celebrating him in, in, in January. But some of us will forget that, in fact, at the time, Martin Luther King was relentlessly mocked by many people, not just by racists, but also by those who uh, wanted to have a more violent civil rights protest. He would go and speak to anyone because of his desire to change their hearts. And many people would call him an Uncle Tom. You're a collaborator. You're a person who is betraying the system and you're not taking our pain seriously. And as a result, he was slandered almost constantly both from, from white supremacists and from those who were very eager to bring about a civil rights revolution. In fact, ultimately it cost him his death. It was not without cost him following the way of peace and reconciliation, but Martin Luther King changed more than anybody else did in the history of the civil rights struggle. Why? Because he truly wanted those who were wrong, those who were gripped by hate, to be freed. Not just for his own sake, but so that they might be freed, and they might come to be the people that God made them to be. That's what our calling is. It is not easy, and it will cost us something, to love those who persecute us. It will cost us something to reach over the aisle and to care for people who are wrong. It will cost us something if we really follow Jesus and say, I do not want vengeance, but instead I want your freedom. We will swallow our pride. Sometimes we will be called collaborators and we will feel sometimes like we're not doing enough. But it is a hard road that sometimes causes us to wonder and to fear. But Jesus says that if you love me and follow me and believe what I say, believe me you will have done what is the most right and godly and holy thing you can do. 
You will have changed a person locked in hate into a person filled with love. So what's our calling today? To remember those who oppose us, even those who are deeply and profoundly wrong, are people made in the image of God. As much as that image has been twisted and covered up, our calling is not to destroy that person, but instead to ask that God destroy the things that bind them. And secondly, to remember that there is cost to it. It will hurt us emotionally at times. Sometimes it will mean we're mocked and we're not liked very much. But we're following somebody who is mocked and not liked very much either. And yet we know that Jesus was raised up to glory because he followed his Father and knew it was the right thing. Let us as a church and us as individuals do what is right, knowing that the glories of following Christ in his kingdom surpass every glory that this world can give.